Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Colin Marshall coming to you from LARB headquarters, speaking today with Eric Lax, author of books on penicillin, on bone marrow transplantation, on Woody Allen, on Paul Newman, and most recently with Robert Peter Gale, MD, Radiation, What It Is, What You Need to Know. Subject obvious. Eric, from writing, from having written books on medical science before, tell me about the state of your knowledge of radiation before this project officially began with Bob Gale. I started this project, I think, with the same amount of knowledge about radiation as almost everyone, which is to say basically nothing. Mm. Um, I knew it was out there. Um, I was not aware that virtually everything is radioactive, including us, uh, just that some things are more more radioactive than others. Mm. Um, and I hadn't realized that the role that radiation plays in our lives, really without radiation, we don't exist. We need it for photosynthesis. It gives us the very basis of our life. Um, if that doesn't happen, um, we're we are not here. If the if Earth is fifty or hundred thousand miles farther or closer to the sun, life as we know it doesn't doesn't exist. So it really is basic to our lives. We we think of it as something that to be to be feared, and it certainly is something to be feared. But it's also something that's absolutely necessary for what we do, and we just need to understand the balance between the two of them and where it's helpful to us, and where we can take precautions to um, not have it hurt us. This. This metaphor appears nowhere in the book, but double-edged sword, that's a fair, a fair assessment? Sure. Um, it is. So that, uh, you know, we, it, it, it helps us um, in any number of, of, of ways, but also, you know, overexposure can cause cancer. We know that radioactivity, excess radioac- radiation causes, causes cancer. Um, what's sort of shocking about it is that how tolerant the human body is, is that not the same dose given to every person is going to end up in the same way. That can also have something to do with age. The, the, one of the things about radiation, especially when we're dealing with something that may cause cancer, um, is that cancers from radiation often take a long time to grow, 20, 30, 40 years. So that the dose, uh, you can receive, if a three-year-old, for instance, and an 80-year-old receive exactly the same dose of radiation, what happens to the three-year-old be much different than what happens to the 80-year-old. It could be worse for the three-year-old. Much worse for the three-year-old. 80-year-old probably isn't going to live long enough for the, you know, for the effects of it to, to do any harm. It will die from something else. A three-year-old has plenty of time for, um, for these things to take place. Or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old. But it, 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 that something happening early in life, there's a longer period for something to, to occur as a result of the radiation. That, I think, I, I count among, when I tell friends about what I learned from this book, the, the fact that the, the fact that somebody young can be more harmed by radiation than somebody old is, is one of the surprising facts that I rattle off. Uh, others would include, oh, I'm, what, what surprised me most, that for certain types of skin cancer, uh, sunscreen is not particularly helpful. That's a, a bit of a side point, though. Uh, one, of the, one of the points that people, I think people know but don't think about very hard is that moderate amounts of radiation hurt. High amounts of radiation that has a higher chance of helping you if it's directed at, for example, cancer. Right. A, a moderate amount of radiation um, can, in fact, cause changes in a cell that can lead to cancer. Um, but a larger amount of radiation will kill the cancer cell. A dead cell can't cause cancer. So that, in fact, the lar- a, a, lar- a smaller dose can give you cancer and a larger dose can cure it. Um, and it's it, in a certain way, it doesn't make any sense, uh, but unfortunately, or fortunately, it's the it's the fact. Tell me what makes this book especially worth having written today. I mean, we obviously there's references to the Fukushima Daiichi explosion, to Chernobyl before that, but it's more than the the, the fear that people have about radiation is driven by more than 
nuclear reactor disasters, right? Yes, although they're a very good place to hang your fears on. Yeah. And I've written this book with, with uh, Robert Peter Gale, who is the American physician who went to Chernobyl and treated victims of radiation there, did bone marrow transplants on the most severely uh, injured firemen uh, who had rushed into the reactor number four at Chernobyl, thinking they were putting out a fire, um, and suddenly found that they were exposed to massive amounts of radiation. He's been involved with the follow-up of, of Chernobyl for the 26, nearly 27 years since it happened. He's also been a medical advisor at virtually every uh, nuclear accident uh, of any consequence since, and was very involved with Fukushima, so that he worked with uh, Japanese scientists to really figure out what is the what is the risk going forward uh, for people around Fukushima and in Japan. Uh, and the answer is, uh, surprisingly, I think to many people, um, virtually nil. They're, they're, they're expected to be few, if any, um, cancers following up from the, uh, from the Fukushima disaster. And this co-author of yours, Robert Peter Gale, if I have this correct, he's also a college classmate of yours, is he not? Yes, he's a college he's a college classmate of mine, um, and we were briefly fraternity brothers before I dropped out of the fraternity. Uh, so Did we've you known know him well then. I knew him pretty well then, and then in 1981, I guess I started. Uh, I, I wanted to do a book about the frontier of science, and I ended up on the bone marrow transplant unit at UCLA, uh, which he ran at the time. This was before he had gone to Chernobyl. I spent uh, the better part of a year on that. You know, I was really curious about what happened to the frontier of medicine, what what happens to the patients, but but also to the doctors and the nurses who treat them, uh, and why people go through such extraordinary uh, uh, physical trauma in some cases, as in a bone marrow transplant, uh, and are willing to risk that. Um, and that was a utterly fascinating period of life. And one of the one of the things I learned on there is if the leukemia is one of the diseases, of course, you get a bone marrow transplant for. Um, when you see somebody in end-stage leukemia, uh, what's called blast crisis for one of the kinds, uh, you can understand why someone would be willing to, to perhaps risk a, a bone marrow transplant in which you have your immune system killed, your blood-producing cells knocked off, and uh, uh, someone else's uh, put into your body. And since that time, have have, have you and, and Dr. Gale been talking about writing a book? Is it sort of like we've got to do a book, we've got to do a book, or or we've got to do a radiation book? Moreover, what was this? What was this conversation? Yeah, this the <laughs> Bob and I uh, in in 2011 had spent seven months trying to get a dinner date, a, a time for us where, uh, uh. where where we and our wives could get together for dinner. I travel a lot; he travels all the time, mm. and so we were never together in the same place. Mm. Uh, right after Fukushima, I was in. Um, in Australia for a, for a book event. And I had read in the paper that Bob had gone to Fukushima and I just, so I sent him a note saying, you know, good luck there and let's have dinner when you get back. And I got a letter from John Siegel, my editor at Alfred A. Knopf saying, do you know where Bob Gale is? And I said, you yeah, know, actually I do. He's in, he's in Fukushima. And he said, you know, the, there's such mixed information coming out from this. He said, nobody really understands what radiation is. Um, would the two of you be willing to do a book? We said at, at the time, this it shows you the the, <laughs> the 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 sense of hope that you can have in the book business. Sometimes uh, he said this was April. He said, you know, if you guys could do this in a hurry, you know, we could make an ebook out of it. We could have this out in October, mm. four months. And we said, oh sure, sure. Well, we can we can we can do that. Um, year and a half later, you know, we, because one of the problems about about trying to explain 
radiation is that nothing is linear in it. It's not if you get this much, then that much will happen. There are an enormous number of things that have to be taken into account. And so for us to really explain this took a, took a great deal of, of time. Uh, but the book interested us both because – Bob was finding just you know a tremendous uh, difference in the kinds of opinion uh, the kinds of information that that people were being given and was sort of frustrated by it um, and so we set out to do something that really tried to cover the waterfront at least in a superficial way of everything from radiation accidents like Chernobyl and Fukushima to uh, to skin cancer to mammograms to medical treatment, trying to explain just the value of radiation in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to show how, what's what's natural, what what is man-made. One of the more astonishing things that uh, for me in coming out of this is to realize that um, about eighty percent of the man-made radiation that we receive is uh, for medical tests of one kind or treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, Fifty years ago, our absorbed radiation was about half of what it is now because there was really nothing being used for for medicine. Uh, and that number is only growing. And so one of the um, – Bob had a funny, very funny thing he wrote to me the other day. He said, let's write a, an op-ed that says, you know, um, should I use that uh, gift certificate for a CT scan that I got for Christmas? Mm-hmm. And the answer is probably not. Um, you get a tremendous amount of radiation from a CT scan. They are terrific diagnostic tools. If you need one, there is nothing better to get by all means. If you're curious about whether you have something, don't do it. You're getting probably five to six times uh, the amount of radiation that you would normally receive in a year from that. So it's not something you want to take lightly. One of the other things that's sort of curious about about this, too, in an understanding, is that, as you were saying, and I certainly agree with, our fears of radiation are kind of so, they're amorphous and irrational. They don't, we, we know it's kind of something to be feared. Uh, at the same time, I think one of the reasons that is that is so problematic is you really can't, you can't see it. You really can't feel it. You can get a sunburn, which is radiation damage. But uh, for the most part, you, you know, we, if we're close, if our hand is close to a fire, we pull it away because we know it's a danger. If we're standing on a precipice, we stand back because we don't fall. But the fact is, you could be standing in front of a, of a, a radiotherapy machine that had been opened, and you could receive a large dose of radiation and not feel it. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a kind of scary, a scary thing in in, in that regard. Brings to mind a particularly chilling story that opens the book in, in Brazil, where these thieves break into a, an abandoned hospital, I guess it is, and break open this scanning machine and then proceed to distribute, sort of sprinkle the radioactive material throughout the village, resulting in fewer deaths than I expected, but a lot of trouble. Um, you know, th- maybe this is my own misconception about radiation. I thought, sprinkle that dust somewhere, everybody dies within a 10 mile radius. Right, right. You think of some sort of poison fairy dust, yes. you know, that yes, everybody's exactly. going to be put into, into, a, into a deep coma and then die. The point of the story is this is in Goiânia, Brazil in 1987, a year after Chernobyl, um, is that about a hundred, by the time this was done, there were about a hundred thousand people who in one way or another had been exposed to this cesium that had been left around. Some quite critically, um, but about 215 people who really need to be washed off and kind of disinfected from it. There were about 14 who were taken to Rio to be treated. These were the people who had really handled this the most, rubbed it on their bodies and various things. But what was so interesting about this is that if you look at it, here's this thing that's all the makings of a horror movie and of a ca- and, a, and a catastrophe. There were f- three or four deaths. Those came from the people who were really handling the cesium, putting it on their bodies, and in one case, 
actually eating it because it was on their hands and they were eating with their hands and putting it in so that they were just completely poisoned by it. But you look at all of this radioactive material that was spread around, all these people were one way or another touched by it. And in fact, you had only a few, three or four deaths, truly unfortunate. There were some houses that needed to be cleaned up. There was, there was material that was buried outside town in a, in a safe place. But in fact, overall, what you would think to be this gigantic catastrophe that could kill off a town, a few people died. There have been no, no, no uh, incidents of cancer in, in those who were affected following up. Um, and that, um, and that Bob and the others who treated the patients in, in Rio, who were radioactors, they had the radioactive material inside them. Um, so the way to do that was to treat them from behind a lead a shield. And they made certain they had no pregnant women or women of, of, uh, childbearing age because there could be damage that would be done to them. So of the, of those who were working on the team, they finally said after the first day, we can't treat these people like this. So they, they just basically exposed themselves to what was coming off. Now, Bob has been, he has treated people like this. He was in a, in a helicopter over the reactor at, uh, at Chernobyl, has been in radioactive situations for the last 30 years. It seems like he's been in all the major ones. He's in all the major. They bring him in for all. He's, the, he's a go-to guy for this. Um, and uh, he doesn't glow in the dark. He, hasn't, he has had no adverse health effects from it. It's, it's interesting is that you think that one touch of it and you're, and you're gone. And the fact is that it's not. It, it, it's just it, it's not like that. One of the um, things that, that that we realize too is that we, we know enough in general about radiation uh, to be to be dangerous about it. So you know that iodine one thirty one. We all know apparently iodine one thirty one can cause thyroid cancer. Mm-hmm. We know that because after after Fukushima, um, you could not find a potassium iodide tablet anywhere on the west coast. Mm-hmm. Every oh, the radiation is coming this way. We're all going to get thyroid poisoning, and it's, you know. And the reason that you take um, iodine for uh, an iodine, potassium iodine tablets for uh, to protect against thyroid cancer is that the the thyroid collects iodine. Um, for the Japanese, it's they they're generally pretty topped up. They have an iodine rich diet. Americans do too, for the most part. Uh, but what you want to do is make sure it's completely topped off because if you get some iodine-131, which is radioactive and can cause thyroid cancer, then it will go and settle in the thyroid. If your thyroid is all topped off, basically it's the, th- the 131 is like a car looking for a place to park. If it can't find room in your thyroid, it's going to go someplace, it's going to go someplace else. But the fact is, is that the, the cloud of, of, from the release gases that, that came across the ocean and goes into the stratosphere, um, had so little that it was depositing over here is that that uh, people in California are on the West Coast buying potassium iodide to protect against uh, iodine-131 for Fukushima could just as well have gone off and bought raincoats to protect against showers falling in, in Barcelona. It was never going to make it, it wasn't going to It wasn't going to hurt you. You, you weren't, you weren't going to get it. Um, so we tried, to, we tried to explain what this is. One of the... Um, We've done a couple of talks now when we've gone out and we've sort of asked people to raise their hands and you say, um, how many people do you think um, have have uh, have died as a result of the Chernobyl accident? Um, you know, 1,000, 20,000. You'll get numbers, 20,000 people, 50,000 people. There have been press reports of a million people dying from it. 29 people died at the in the in the inferno uh, and the and the explosion. Or in the aftermath of of being so uh, poisoned, um, a couple, two people fell 
to their deaths in the explosion, and their bodies were not they're not recovered. Uh, there were thirty million people in the direct path of the of the cloud of coming from coming from Chernobyl, and these were unfortunately subsistence farmers, really, and especially in Belarus, but also Ukraine, parts of Russia, um, who were eating the the um, cesium-137, iodine-131 that was coming because it's falling on the grass. Their cows, sheep are eating the grass. Um, they're absorbing that. It's coming out in their milk. It's in their meat if they're eating that. It's going into the leaves of their vegetables. And one of the great tragedies of Chernobyl was that the it was two weeks before the Soviet government um, really spread the word, acknowledged that this had happened. So the people in the path of this were who couldn't be evacuated, they couldn't get, they had iodine-poor diets, they couldn't get potassium iodide tablets to them. So you'd think that of these 30 million people, there would be a tremendous number of deaths. So far, 26 years after the event, there have been around six to 7,000 cases of thyroid cancer, mm-hmm. of which there have been about 15 deaths. And the feeling is, is that the number over the years might rise to somewhere between 10 and 25 or 30,000. Again, most of those would be cured. So that the the idea of the catastrophe is so great, um, but the overall health effects are surprisingly, to me anyway, smaller than you would ever imagine from it. Now, that doesn't mean you should go out and start eating iodine one thirty one, or you should start getting extra casket. The point we make in here quite clearly is, you know, radioactive uh, radiation does give you cancer. You want to do everything you can not to have any extra radiation. But that the damage that comes from the catastrophes we're dealing with are are surprisingly smaller than we might imagine. Mm. These stories of the iodine tablet shelves emptying in California or of the Brazilian thieves sprinkling radioactive dust around or, you know, one of my favorites is a story I remember my mom telling from childhood all the time, from her childhood, telling me in my childhood of the, the pedo scan machines and oh, yes. in, in, in shoe stores, which is unbelievable now, showing, x-raying your feet to get a, a shoe correct. You know, what, what kind of a wealth of stories, of telling stories of human ignorance about radiation were you working with here? What, I imagine there are many and, you, you know, you found the most telling, put them in the book, but they had to be everywhere. One of the things that's interesting about radiation, it started off as a curiosity. It was a fascinating thing. People were really, you know, they, it, it was almost kind of like a toy. It was this magical toy that you could, you could play with. Um, the notion of the, uh, and people uh, uh, with some rheumatological diseases uh, go sit in and raid on caves, uh, which emit a great deal of, of, of radiation. We can come back to radon in a minute. Actually, just as an aside here, radon is probably the single greatest cause of cancer for any of us. Now, it's, a nat- it's naturally occurring. It's in earthen rocks. If you have a house with a basement, have it checked out. You can, there's a test that you can do and send to the, you get a kit, send it to the EPA for, for evaluation. Um, if the radon is collecting in your basement, in fact, it's something you will be inhaling and it can, it, it's the greatest, as I say, the greatest sort of single cause of, of, of cancer causing things for, for us. Um, it's easy to mitigate um, and an easy test to do. Um, so rather than worry about backscatter machines at the airport, which we can come to later, you know, check out your basement for radon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the, the, until World War II, for instance, it was it was kind of a it was a kind of a benign uh, 
uh, curiosity, um, and even following World War II, the, the petoscopes, as you mentioned, which was the brand name for them. Yes, you could go in there. You you could look at your toes and your shoes to do my toes fit properly. And of course, while you're getting yours done, you know everybody in your family is running. Oh, let me put my feet through here too. And you're getting, you know, you could get up to you know half your year's amount of, of uh, radiation just from sticking your feet in there for. Did a minute. you have any firsthand memories of these machines? I remember. I put my own feet in them. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, um, somebody asked us the other night whether the uh, arthritis that they had in their in their toes uh, came from the petoscope machine, and uh, uh, Bob's answer to this was no. That, that radiation doesn't seem to have much to do with with arthritis, mm-hmm. but um, it is kind of astonishing is that you think of this as this kind of you know wonderful this wonderful toy. You know, there's a quite tragic case of uh, uh, in the early part of the 20th century is that. Um, watches used to have radium dials, so you could see them. You know, it was glowed in the dark, and they had these little green numbers. And uh, these were hand painted by uh, usually women with tiny hands, and they were called radon girls. Um, and to get the the point of the brush just right, they would they would lick it with their tongue, and then they could make the then dip it into the pot of, of radium. Well. They were suddenly finding out they were getting jaw cancer as a, as a result of this. Um, and the, the Radium Company of America, which uh, produced all this, behaved quite scandalously in doing this, in denying that, that this was at all uh, dangerous for them. Uh, when some of them banded together and brought a lawsuit, they accused them of having syphilis and any number of other things. It was really quite a scandalous scandalous case. And the, the company really did know for its own own um, executives, you know, to stay away from it, but allowed these young women to really poison themselves, and many and many died as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found, however, in this time when it's gone from kind of this nice benign curiosity, in some ways we've overreacted on the other side. You know, we one of the things about Fukushima, for instance, when when we talk about the earthquake and and the problems in in Japan from. March 11th of, of uh, uh, 2011. We tend to forget that the earthquake and the ensuing tsunami, the earthquake moved the entire island of Honshu, the main island of Japan, eight feet to the east. It drowned 20,000 people. It's left 300,000 people temporarily or permanently hopeless, homeless. Um, it created just enormous psychological uh, havoc for many people. Uh, people within sort of the 30-kilometer exclusion zone around uh, around Fukushima were were evacuated. It's, it's it's tragic what's happened to them. There will be a lot of cleanup that's necessary um, in in the ground around there. But the fact is is that no one has died from radiation poisoning, even workers in the plant. Um, and that, as I mentioned earlier, the 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 follow up that Bob and other scientists have done in Japan and the numbers that are accepted by them is there will be few, if any, cancers that follow through on this. But the notion of this plant being breached as it was, and this radiation being released, overshadows the real tragedy of of the earthquake, and the, which is the physical damage that was done, and the number of villages that were wiped out, and people left homeless again, and as I say, 20,000 people people drowned from this. At the top of the, near the top of the list of misconceptions, uh, I think this book corrects, is that nuclear weapons and nuclear plant explosions 
They don't cause most of their damage by the radiation. They cause it by the actual fires, the actual explosions, the actual concussive force. And a, a, a nuclear plant breached is it doesn't contain a nuclear bomb, correct? Right. You can't, uh, uh, if there's a a nuclear plant is not going to explode in the way that a nuclear bomb would. It will have a it will have a fire. It will have an explosion, but the explosion is from steam or from gas, um, and it is not an atomic reaction that's going on. I, I did before writing this book. I. I kind of assumed that the people who died in the bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki died from radiation poisoning of one kind or another. Uh, but the fact is about 10% of the deaths were, were that. The, the largest, the, by far the greatest majority of, of deaths come from the same effect as any bomb. It, it's a massive explosion. There's a fire that falls. Uh, buildings fall in on you. Uh, you're hit by flying shrapnel. And people die, people die from that and quite, quite horribly. The thing about a nuclear explosion, of course, is that it's just so much greater. A single bomb can do so much. But the fact that the number of uh, the effect of, of in terms of, you know, if we did a firebombing of Tokyo, uh, the Allied did, the Allied forces did, um, it killed as many people. It just it, this this one bomb was so, or these bombs are so effective. And of course, they're tiny by the standards of what we have now. Mm-hmm. And what's been, what's happened as a result of the of the bombs is that for the last sixty years now there's been extensive follow up of the survivors, and one of the things we know, one of the reasons we know as much as we do about radiological damage to humans, is following these people through the through the course of their lives. It is a chapter people will turn to first, the radiation and cancer chapter. Because there's the intersection of two fears, radiation and cancer. Are we afraid of those two things in the same amorphous, not particularly well-informed way? Yes, I th- I think that there is um, uh, yes a concern in both of those. I, one thing we need to start off about with about cancer is that um, for uh, American men, you have about a forty four percent chance of developing cancer in your lifetime. Um, that doesn't mean you'll die from it, but forty four percent men are going to are going to have a cancer. The figure is about thirty eight percent, thirty nine percent for women. So you're starting off with a pretty high baseline for where this is going to occur. So now you start looking at what is the cause of the, what's causing cancer on, on top of this. Um, skin cancers are, are, are developing at a, at a frighteningly high and accelerated rate because um, with global warming and, and as the ozone layer is, is, uh, is, is decreases, decreases more and more, um, more UVB rates uh, are coming, uh, more UVB rays are coming through, which can cause skin cancer. And skin cancers and melanoma are really something to be very concerned about. You mentioned you mentioned earlier um, about uh, about suntan lotion, about sunscreen. Um, it's advisable to wear sunscreen all the time when you go out to wear dark glasses as much as you can, just to prevent to get to prevent against rays. One of the things that we we worry about is is melanoma, which is the the most serious and most deadly and kind of the quietest of, of skin cancers. We all as adults go out and kind of slather. Uh, sunscreen on ourselves. One of the things we've learned about that is that if you're going to get melanoma, you're pre- it's it's likely you will you will set the the mechanism in motion uh, before you're 10 or 11 years old. Um, there are studies done of of children who have families who have moved, say, from from England, where it's a low sunlight country in comparison to Australia. Um, is that those who came uh, before the age of 10 had kind of the same incidences of cancer as as 
those living in Australia, people who came afterward um, had a, had a lower incidence, and so it just seems that the body is 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 really kind of programmed to take this in early on. So it, it, it's advisable to put it on your children. I, for somebody my age, I'm in my sixties. Um, you know, I never used sunscreen as a kid. I, in fact, put baby oil on to yes. uh, you know to to make the suntan better. So it's just inviting inviting trouble. Uh, but people think that they're protecting against melanoma later in life. What you're really protecting against is any all sorts of other other sun skin cancers as well. But unfortunately, melanoma is uh, pretty much set in motion as we've seen by the by the age of ten. But there are plenty of other skin cancers that you want to protect against, and uh, by all means, it's important to wear uh, sunscreen. Why are we so afraid of cell phones? Well, I think you know that. You hear it, it's like it's like ghost stories of one kind or another. You you know you hear somebody says you know, gosh I've got this thing next to my next to my head and I'm going to get a, a glioma as a result of this because of all these rays coming through. Um, anything and the, you know the phone gets hot when it's sitting there. Um, we go into this in, in some detail. There are no studies that have come out that, are, that show any convincing uh, correlation between cell phone usage and. Um, and cancers, you're really talking about, about radio waves. We have a, we talk a lot about the electromagnetic spectrum and from one end to the other. Radio waves are very low on it. Um, when you start getting up toward, at the end with gamma rays, which are terribly, terribly dangerous, um, you've got some troubles, but there's, there's nothing convincing that shows that radio waves are, um, in any way cancer, cancer producing. There's something, there's something in that about, I, I, I want to touch on as well this fact that you get more radiation by, taking a plane and by going through the scanner, you know, what, how much of the conversations you were having with Dr. Gale were about just our, our fears of the wrong things? Right. There, there are plenty. There, we worry, uh, we worry about odd things. Uh, we worry, any number of your friends, I'm sure. And, and mine for certain say, well, what is, what is it about the back scanner machine? You know, what, what kind of radiation am I going to get from this? You're getting a minuscule amount that goes through. And the fact is the first five minutes you're in the air, you're going to get more radiation that comes through the plane than you got from the back scanner. Because as the plane goes higher, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's less to stop the, um, the, the ultraviolet rays that are coming through. Um, and all people on planes pick up radiation on the course of their trip. Um, there are, have been a number of studies done on pilots and, and flight attendants to see if there's any excess, um, any excess cancers in them. There are a couple of studies that show that there, there may be um, uh, some with uh, female uh, flight attendants. It's not particularly clear on that yet. If it is, it's not a very, if it's not a very great amount. Um, so that when you're flying, um, and I fly 100,000 miles a year, and Bob flies probably twice as much of that, um, we know we're getting excess radiation, um, and it does add to our total for the year, but lots of people fly vast distances uh, all the time, and there doesn't seem to be much, if, if even a perceptible um, increase in the, in the cancers uh, for, for uh, passengers. Your book on bone marrow transplantation was about the frontier of medicine, about about the cutting edge, and your book on penicillin was about the history of medical science as well. But tell me about how this book, how it how it differed for you writing, I suppose a, a primer about something to do with science and to do with medical science as well. What how does this how do you see this in relation to your other medical science related books? This one was completely different. The, the the benefit of life and death on Ten West was as I is the story of a twenty six year old woman six months pregnant with her first child, who was discovered to have leukemia, and it was about what happens next. And it's like sixty minutes. There's a stopwatch that that begins with with telling the story. 
you can stop and take the commercial break by talking about the doctors or the nurses or, or, or giving medical history on what goes on. You can tell stories about that. And then you go back into the story of her. So it's very novelistic. You have a character. Something's happening to her. There's going to be a resolution. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end to this. So in that regard, it's a, it's a much simpler book to write because you can use a narrative uh, and novelistic form on it, even though everything is truly factual. The same with the mold in Dr. Flory's coat. Here was this uh, wonderful medical story, a kind of a mystery that goes uh, to it. There are these wonderful characters. Mm -hmm. So you could tell the story of these people. And by doing that, linking it to the events that goes on, again, you can take kind of a narrative novelistic approach to it. So those books were much easier, in, in even though they were very difficult to write, they were much easier than this. Here, Bob and I were stuck with a lot of facts. Hi, we're going to tell you about radiation now. Here's what it's going. And I found that as I was going through this, you know, I'd have uh, have periods where I was just completely unable to kind of to get anything down. And I had said to myself, you know, what's the matter with you? You know, this isn't rocket science. You know, just you just kind of just let's get this down. And one day, I, when giving myself this lecture, I said in answer, you said, you're right. It, 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 it's not rocket science, but it is nuclear physics. <laughs> and nuclear physics turns out to be a difficult thing to write about. Um, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to try to explain. And so um, I was saved in the telling of this book by Bob's stories, which are kind of – because they put a human face on it. Um, one of the – um, the stories I love, I love most about it is that he was in Moscow treating the victims of, of Chernobyl. There was, uh, there were clinical trial, animal trials going on with a human growth hormone that they, they were certain were going to help with producing granulocytes, which had been killed and essential to the blood. Um, and, uh, these, these firemen and the others who had severe radiation poisoning were going to die without something that was going to – something quite magical, something new to help them out. They had not been tried on, on humans yet, but they were, they were ready to go. But the Russian government was not – the Soviet then Soviet government was not willing to have uh, Soviet citizens used as guinea pigs for this. And you could understand they were having a lot of trouble with – they were having a lot of bad PR as it was anyway. The last thing they wanted to do was this. And so Bob said, fine, I'll be – you know. I'll, I'll, we'll do the first trial on me, and his his um, and he talked to his Soviet counterpart and said, "Well, fine, I'll inject you, but you have to inject me. The two of us are going to go through this together." So they um, they looked at all the data that they had from from uh, from trials in monkeys and figured out how much they had to give each other, and they injected each other, and they said they'd come back in the morning and uh, take their blood counts, and by then, if the granulocytes were up, they would know that that they were okay, and then this was safe to try on humans. So uh, Bob goes off to, to dinner at the American ambassador's house, and while he is there, he gets a phone call. Uh, uh, Dr. Vorobiev is his, is his counterpart, saying uh, Vorobiev is in critical condition in the hospital. Um, perhaps you want to come over. And Bob's going, oh, my goodness. You know, this, uh, if he dies, it's really unfortunate for him, and it's also really unfortunate for the, for the patient. He said, I, and he gets there, and people are around, and Vorobiev is white as a sheet, and he's clutching his chest, and it looks like he's had a heart attack. But Bob started, but they can't find it on an, on an EKG. And Bob starts talking to him and realizes that what's happening is that his sternum, his breastbone, where there is a, um, a good supply of bone marrow, um, 
is hurting him. It's not, it's not his heart. And what's happening is the, the growth factor is kind of squeezes the, the bone marrow in there to push out the granulocytes. And he was feeling the pain of that. It's well documented now, uh, having been used on thousands and thousands of patients that this is, that this is the case. But the monkeys hadn't told them this. You know, so they had they had no idea that this could happen. So Vorobiev turns out to be all right. They inject the patients, and um, it's, it's of some benefit to others. And when Bob was in in Goiania in, in Rio treating the Goiania patients, they were able to use it in some of the uh, of the victims there, and it was it was helpful to them. And now it's now it's a common uh, a, a common prescription. In that dramatic moment of the story, when when Doctor Gale gets the call that the the Russian doctor is in critical condition, you know, you you told us the thoughts you you wrote you wrote about him having. You don't write about him having the thought, maybe I'm next, maybe I'm about to go as well. I mean, I'm sure that thought must have come to mind, but uh, it illustrates in the book the the man is this this is a man very much focused on his subject. I, I would imagine from the descriptions of him in here, tell me if I'm right or not, that he would really think, oh, this will, this, this is going to impede what we're going to learn about radiation more before he would think I might die from this. Well, he was, uh, it's, it's largely true. I, I think that he wouldn't knowingly stand in front of something that, that he, that he was convinced was going to, mm. to hurt, uh, to kill him. But he was so convinced from the, one of his uh, colleagues at UCLA, David Goldie, had been doing the work on this, and he was quite familiar with it. And it was very clear that this was something that was, that, that had tremendous benefit to it. And he was quite convinced that this was not going to harm humans. And what was interesting in, in his case is that he had no symptoms whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but Vorobiev did. And so he, um, but I think that he was, he was willing to take a calculated risk on there. He said, we have people here who are going to die if we don't do something. The only, th- the only something we can do outside of what we've been able to do is to give them some of this growth factor. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, let's test it on us and uh, we'll go forward for there. So he is very, well, he's a very courageous guy and he's very determined to, he, he fights for his patients and is determined to get people, to get people through things. How much of your interest in writing about medical science has to do with writing about people who are fixated on their pursuit, who are perhaps obsessed with with pushing forward whatever it is they're doing? Because these these figures pop up in your books about medical science, and indeed, you know, on the on the other half of your of your bibliography, you're writing about Woody Allen, a man who people think of as obsessed with his craft. How much is, I suppose, pure obsession? to do with who you want to write about? Almost every book I've done has been accidental. Um, Life and Death on Tan West came about because I was looking to do um, uh, something about the frontier of medicine, and I have no medical background. I was a failed science student in in school. Um, I was really hopeless. (laughs) And um, I realized that if I was going to write about this, I needed to know somebody in a hospital, and I realized that I knew Bob Gale at UCLA. Uh, and so went to see him, and I, I was interested in writing about the. I was doing this for a, a, a magazine at the time, and it, it, we, the editor and I thought the brain research would be interesting. Mm-hmm. So I went to see Bob, and he said, Here's, you know, "You're all the things on brain." And I said, "Well, what do you do?" And he said, "Oh, I run the bone marrow transplant service." And I said, "What's a bone marrow transplant?" Mm-hmm. And this is, and I, he told me, and I went, "You know, this is uh, this is kind of more interesting than." Than, uh, than, than, than brain research right now. Mm-hmm. So that's how I just came to that story. The, uh, the mold in Dr. Flory's coat was I was reading an obituary in the New York Times um, of a woman um, who had uh, 
who had died and was the was the first recipient of, in America was the first recipient of penicillin in in the U.S. Mm-hmm. In the course of reading it, it talked about Alexander Fleming, whom everybody knows. But kind of by the time you got to the end of it, they, it made the point that well, actually, Fleming didn't make it into the penicillin that we can all take. It was his team at. at at Oxford, and I went. Well, wait a minute. I don't know anything about that. There's kind of a mystery here, and the more I looked into it, the more wonderful the the mystery story was. And so I that that allowed me to do it. The nice thing about th- that book was that I became friendly with the last living member of the team there, who was a meticulous diarist, and he had never opened his diaries to to anybody to to any of the um, scientific institutes. He'd taken out all of the scientific stuff that he had kept. Mm-hmm. But it was a wealth of personal material. It was it was the lives of what was of the people in the lab at the time, and their their pettiness and their and their grandiosity in some cases, and their fabulous science on the others, and the wonderful things that they were able to do to each other. Uh, it was just this great human story, and so that allowed me to really bring people into the book because you were seeing it through the lives of these very driven people who were quite dedicated in in what they were doing. Woody Allen is, as you say, his. You know, everyone knows him to be kind of this obsessive guy. He's completely different from the person you see on the screen. Uh, the guy on the screen has is kind of hapless and has no control over his life. Uh, and uh, Woody is not hapless and has control over every aspect of his life and especially of his of his uh, of his work. But he is as dedicated to where I've, I have seen this, I, where he finished making a movie. In the morning, he'd done the last of the edits that he did. All the sound was mixed. It was finally ready. He said, okay, we're done. He went home. He had lunch. He went up to his room. He got down on the bed where he writes and started working on his next script that afternoon. It was not, I guess I'll take the afternoon off and go to a movie or something. It's, okay, now it's time to start writing the next one. Are, are you on to, as accidental as they may be, are you on to your own next projects in, in a similar fashion where it's the one immediately follows the next or your curiosity is 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 turn towards something else soon after a book? It's wonderful when there's something to do immediately after it. That's almost never happened. There is that, there is that moment of where, uh, unlike Woody, who looks up and says, oh, I'm done. Oh, good. It's uh, 11 o'clock. I'll get a sandwich and I'll, now I can get started on the next. I look up and go, oh, God, you know, now, <laughs> what, what now? You know, oh, so. <laughs> Your previous book, Faith Interrupted, dealt with your your separation from religious belief and it's a story there there is a story that i hear from from many friends who who are former believers they will say you know their belief didn't survive their first round of biology classes in college something like that how much how much did your what you learned writing about medicine about biology about medical science affect the way you believed or stopped believing actually that had almost nothing to um no almost nothing to do with it i uh i came from a, a family that believed in evolution and uh, uh, that it was quite sort of separated from from the spirituality or from, from any belief in, in uh, God. Um, it had more to do with just um, as my life unfolded and the experiences that I had and the more that I was able to think about things and experience them is that I just couldn't reconcile the faith that I had as a, as a kid that I had said, if so unflinchingly and so happily and that I had well into my twenties, um, that it just, I could never, I could never hold it together. And I've thought in the past that it, it may have been because I was kind of so rigid in that belief that I, it was, it was something that I accepted so wholly and so easily mm. is that it just didn't withstand 
It could be altered some, but it couldn't be taken apart and put back together. Mm. How much? How much does the the concept of what we believe? This is so broad, and I'm going to I'm going to refine it. But what we believe versus what is true. I mean, even in this in, in the radiation book, you're doing so much to 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 counter beliefs that just sort of we, we're not sure how they form, but they're misconceptions about radiation or about cancer or about the scanner machines at the airport. D- do you have an interest in? In purely that, in, in, in the sense that we, we think a lot of things, not a lot of them are true, how do we separate? I think that with uh, uh, the penicillin book, with, with the, the mold in Dr. Flory's coat, there was a, wonder, there was a wonderful record. There was a, there was a way to set the record straight about some things to make the story more complete than people had thought. So that part was fun. This was, in talking with Bob as we were sorting out what to do, is that what we think and what we know are two such different things, mm-hmm. um, especially with radiation. That the that the challenge and the and the pleasure in doing this was to say, let's try to put this into perspective. Here is something that can easily kill you. Do not start messing around with it. We're not we're not trying in any way to suggest mm-hmm. that this is not a not something to to be concerned about. But it is something that's that's critical to our lives. That it plays a huge role in what we do. There are ways to avoid danger. And to try to put this into perspective so that um, rather than for all of us to go around with these kind of um, uh, vague sense, this vague notions of dread about that and not particularly well formed except that, oh, my God, it's terrible and what's going to happen is that if you're really going to be you know, worried about that is that we'll give you some really specific things that you can be really worried about <laughs> and some other things you don't need to be worried about at all. You know, right. try, to, try to put those so that if you want to worry about radiation, we'll give you plenty to worry about because it's something that you can do something about. The rest of the stuff, you know, try not to sweat it because there are plenty of other things to worry about. Um, and one, one of the things being, you know, we talk about the backscatter machine. We've come back to that a couple of times. If it's a given that radiation causes cancer, then it, then we have to accept the fact that even the small amount of, of radiation that comes from a backscatter machine multiplied by a billion people getting it over the course of the time, that as a result of this, somebody, there will be a, there will be an instance or two of cancer that's come along out of this. It's just the way the, 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 the numbers work on it. Uh, at the same time, the radiation that say the, the the amount that you're getting in the airplane is so significantly more that that may be something you want to you want to be concerned about. Um, you you mentioned going to public events with Dr. Gale and talking about this book, getting questions from the public. How much of a reaction? What what sort of a reaction do you do you get from a book like this? Is it oh I'm glad there's finally a primer on this sort of thing, or is it like well I don't know. I don't. I have my own ideas about radiation. I don't know if these align with them. What what what, what kind of vibe do you get from the public about so far about a book like this? It's it's complicated. You know, we are our radi- our fears are so well uh, embedded in us that to come along and have somebody say, "Well, worry about this. Don't worry so much about that." Mm-hmm. It's hard to to change that mindset mm-hmm. that goes on, and so. Um, I was talking with somebody who had, uh, we were at the uh, L.A. Public Library for the Allowed series the other night. And we'd gone through this, and I had a nice note from one of the people there saying, uh, you know, it all made a lot of sense, but I still have these vague, you know, sort of radiogenic fears that I don't, that I, that I don't know what to do about. It's hard, it's hard to, to put, them, put the two of them together. So I think that for um, – to try to take a new mindset – about something that's been such a fearful thing for us is is uh, is difficult to do, and it's it's again it's sort of hard to to accept 
if you thought that millions have died after Chernobyl or a million people have died after Chernobyl and you find out that, you know, that the World Health Organization and others are saying basically we're talking about six to 7,000 thyroid cancers so far, 15 deaths and, you know, perhaps twice as many three, over, the, over the next 30 or 40 years, that it's hard – it's it's just hard to balance the two of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's uh, – and that's been that's been interesting to – to see is they people say well I'm, thank you so much for telling me this I, but I'm still kind of I still can't quite get over my my fears but we've had our fears for a long time and you've had this information for an hour so you know it's hard to tell me about the conversation you had with with Dr. Gale as far as specifically you know we're we're coming up against some controversial issues here in this book nuclear power irradiated foods even the the issues of what causes cancer are are politicized to some degree what did you two what conclusion did you do, come to as far as how to how to deal with those in a way where people you wouldn't shut people down to receiving the information you needed to give them? Because we, as we went through this, we tried not to not to be for really. We're not trying to be an apologist for anything. And our, our our hope is is that we annoy people on both sides that will that we really will have done our job right. Yeah. Um, and so that that was the thing in there. We were trying to be very careful not to editorialize, not to say we think this is better than that, um, and things like uh, on on whether irradiated food is dangerous, uh, in which the, to us the science is very clear. Um, we do say that you know it's not something to be concerned about, uh, and there and there are. Uh, plenty of reasons to be grateful for it as opposed to be worried about it because mm-hmm. um, it it does kill off all of the, the bacteria that cause food poisoning. There are hundreds of millions of cases of food poisoning here around the world mm-hmm. that could be alleviated by, in fact, irradiating food. Um, and people will say, well, you know, um, it, it, well, it's got the radiation in, you know, this, this, it, it's now radioactive food, but it's no more radioactive than your teeth are after you've had a had a dental X-ray. It's passed through. It's not there anymore. You're not. You're not in any danger from this. Uh, but the dangerous things that were in there have, in fact, been been killed by it. Mm-hmm. So we are. We do sort of come out strongly on that. On the others, you know, we tend to take it. We're. It's. It's all we wanted to do was just lay out the facts, whatever. And they're the best medical and scientific facts that are out there. We've checked them all. We've. We've made our decision that this is a, a very comfortable place for us to be. There will be people on either sides of the question um, who may come after us. Although what's been interesting so far is that no one has taken exception. Mm, really? uh, I've in the, the the scientific community has been uh, generous in its in its response. Mm. So you know who knows? But I'm sure somebody's somebody's going to be offended and unhappy, and I, I'm sure we'll hear from them. <laughs> Having written this book with Dr. Gale, tell me you for you personally, do you? Do you find you have you are relieved of, of a certain burden of, of fears about radiation and its dangers, or are you thinking more now? Oh well, I know I know better that that's dangerous and that's not. You know, are you are you thinking more or less about the dangers of radiation? Is is is, is it a relief or sort of are you more watchful now? Well, I'm, I, I know what to be careful about more, much more than I did when I started it. So, in fact, I um, I'm doing that. I have a uh, it, just in my own medical care at the present, there's something that needs to be looked at um, that can be done with an MRI. Um, I'm happy to have an MRI. There's no, there's no radiation in that. Um, if, it were, if, if a CT scan were needed to do it, I'd ask a lot more questions of the doctor to see if it was really, if it was really necessary. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that, that 
where people get um, are, are not kind of managed in their balance about uh, concern about this. And as I say, people will be much more concerned about backscatter radiation than they will be about a CT scan, yeah. uh, which gives you know, thousands of times more. Uh, radiation than it comes down. And so what we all need to do is just be aware of the amount. And your doctor needs to be able to say to you, if you ask, what kind of radiation do I get from this? And the doctor needs to say that. And if the doctor can't supply you with this information, then you may be at the wrong doctor. And your readers may do well to accept the fact that they don't control nuclear weapon deployment. They don't control exploding reactors. They do control whether they get radon tests in the basement. They do control whether they get a CT scan. It, 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 there's this sense that you need to know what you can, uh, accept the things you can, you accept what you can change and change what you can't, you know, that, that whole, that whole thing. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So is that the, um, is that also, as I think what we need to do, and we, we, we talk about the, both the drawbacks and the advantages of, of nuclear energy and nuclear power, um, is that, uh, you know, the difference is you start thinking about um, the people who die as a result of, of, of accidents. The, the, the only deaths from in a nuclear reactor so far are the people who died at, at Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the deaths in, in mining coal, for instance, in the transport of coal, uh, um, 100,000 miners over the last century in, in America, 6,000 a year in China now for that, is that you start thinking that, well, maybe one source of energy might be more deadly than another, even though there's no doubt that a super catastrophe of a, of, of a nuclear meltdown could be very dangerous. But on the one, on the other hand, we've kind of seen what that can do. And it's hard to have anything worse than, hap- than what happened in Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, an exclusion zone that's around there now that is, you know, but it, but it is coming back to life in ways that people hadn't quite experienced, mm-hmm. uh, hadn't quite expected. Um, and that the great boogeyman around this uh, may not be quite as, quite as great as we, quite as great as we think. Um, again, the, the, the dangers of, of nuclear energy and nuclear waste and, and, and radioactive waste is that it sticks around for a long time, 250,000 years. That's a, you know, a long time. On the other hand, um, there are many toxins that come out of coal and other, uh, and other fossil fuels that have an equally long shelf life of damage and that are out in the environment or getting into, are, are being kept in a careless way or getting back into the, into the water. Um, and so that it, that all hazardous waste is something that needs to be carefully rounded up and and quarantined and kept kept away from people. Um, and for many of the failures of the nuclear industry, one thing they're doing better than anybody else is keeping keeping their waste under better lock and key than than most. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons for that is if you is how small the amount is by comparison. If you if you were to take all of the nuclear, you know, high-level nuclear waste that's around, um, put it would fill a football field to about twenty feet. Uh, now you actually wouldn't want to stack it up because you could probably start a, a chain reaction there. But, but the fact is, it's a it's it's a manageable amount of material when you think of it. And if you look at slag heaps from coal or from uh, or from other or other uses, it's just it's a tremendous amount of waste that gets spread around the environment. I won't say this book is pro nuclear power in the end, but. That's it's maybe less of a worry than some might think. Can we say that? Yes, and 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 one of the one of the things that we argue for very strongly in the book is that it's it's incumbent upon uh, all upon governments and nuclear energy producers 
to be follow the most stringent safety regulations possible. One of the alarming things that came out of Fukushima uh, was that safety regulations were not being enforced as well as they should be. That you know this this plant withstood a tremendous uh, uh, shock in terms of both of just of the massive earthquake and then the earthquake really didn't cause the problems. It was a tsunami coming in over and this huge thing coming over forty foot high walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, that finally led to the the problems there, but in fact, there may have been things that could have prevented that uh, had the regulations been followed to, as as they were supposed to be and we 're very much in favor of of the most stringent regulations on, on of safety regulations on there. You know I used to worry about nuclear plants all the time. I think, oh my God, what are we you know what are we doing with this mm-hmm. um, but a properly run if if you 're standing in grand central terminal uh, or standing next to the u s capitol you'll receive more radiation from the radon in the rocks mm. than you will inside a properly running nuclear power plant. And most of them are properly running. Uh, again, not saying that they're, that they're done perfectly and that there's plenty more that needs to be done in there, but it is something that can be contained in a way larger than I think we give it credit for. Mm. It's, if the information, if, if people have the information, if, Agencies have the information. If countries have the information, it's all about spreading the information, is it not? Right, and that, and and none of that. What we're saying there, and certainly not what I'm saying now, is that the nuclear energy is the answer to everything. There are plenty of you know, plenty of alternative energies, but if you look at at a world in which uh, we are now seven billion people and and exponentially more people demanding electricity than we've ever had before, if we're going to produce the electricity that people we need. Every form of, of productions of mass quantities of electricity have drawbacks to them and have great dangers to them. From uh, coal and from fossil fuels, it's, it's greenhouse gases, it's, uh, it's pollution of the landscape and, and, and the air. Um, you get more radiation if you live near a coal, a coal burning power plant than you do if you live next to a nuclear power plant. The danger, of course, is is that you know a nuclear accident can be quite catastrophic, but so can others. So we argue for a kind of a very balanced approach to all sorts of uh, energy consumption, and we are our energy production with the knowledge that we are living in a planet uh, with a and in, in, in surrounding that planet, we have put the largest toxic waste dump in the solar system mm-hmm. with all of the uh, carbon and greenhouse gases that we put up there and that that stands a much greater chance of doing us huge harm as a civilization as a than uh, um, than almost anything else i've been speaking here at the los angeles review of books headquarters with eric lax co-author with robert peter gale md of radiation what it is what you need to know as well as books on woody allen paul newman penicillin bone marrow transplantation and his own spiritual journey eric thanks so much thanks so much for having me paul this has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Find much more at lareviewofbooks.com. Thanks.